Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman, and this podcast is coming to you uh, the Monday morning after week six, a week that actually extended into Sunday because of Georgia, South Carolina. Uh, This seems like a million years ago now, Bruce, but on Saturday, especially being at the Fox Studios, there was... OU Texas was a really big deal for FS1, and so we did an hour-long pregame show. We had Katie Nolan out at the State Fair and, and all kinds of stuff. And then the game happened, and obviously no playoff stakes to speak of, but it felt, and I kept saying this, it feels like there is a lot at stake, and most of it revolves around Charlie Strong and his job security. It was another terrible defensive performance for the Horns, and I'm wondering if you think at this point if he has any chance of saving himself. You know, Stu, let me start by saying this. I watched the game, and yeah, their defense is terrible. They are really, really bad in the secondary. D.D. Westbrook ate them up. And, you know, have they gotten better on that side of it in the secondary? It doesn't look like it. But I do feel like this is an improved team overall than what it was last year. I mean, they're, they're much better on offense. You, they're multidimensional. I feel like there's a there's there are reasons for optimism. I mean, this is year three there for him. And you look at their depth chart. I mean, I counted it up. They got 27 freshmen and sophomores on the two deep. Basically, half the defense is sophomores. And I, I'm curious to see how they respond going forward. I mean, it wasn't like they got blown off the field here. Uh, now there was some you know fortunate there wasn't a, wasn't a pick six early in the game that. That Micaiah Quick, who was a former receiver at OU, looked like a former receiver when he dropped the ball, and and there were some you know questionable turnovers. They got they Texas really benefited from an awful non-pass interference flag that led to a Mayfield interception. But you know when I look at Texas and I do see some of the positives, you know I think that I feel like people have already made their mind up about Charlie Strong and whether he goes eight and four or seven and five. I'm not sure they're gonna they're going to see much difference in it. I mean, I, I, I think they can win. They, I think they can still win eight games. But I just feel like people are going, you know what? They're too bad on defense. We didn't see enough improvement. We don't like that he's made all these, you know, juggling of his staff. And ultimately, I feel like it's just not a fit there. And it's, I don't know, I just, the product on the field, again, I, I thought that there are there are quite a bit of positives, and I don't think it's much different than what I expected them to be at this point. This is what I thought they would look like. I thought they'd be a little better on defense, but the record-wise, this is kind of where I thought they'd be. Yeah, we always knew the beginning of the schedule was the tough part. I think what you said is exactly right. A lot of people made up their mind about Charlie Strong either when he was hired or sometime in that first year when the offense was so bad. Um, sometimes this happens where... There's just, like you said, not a good fit. People are skeptical from the outset, and then and they just don't have patience. And, you know, is the program in general heading in the right direction? Yes, it's more talented. He has a, a good functioning offense now. But the yeah, I, I, we said it last week with Chip Brown when he was on here. I think it's a different – there would still be grumblings, but I don't think it would be quite so severe if he hadn't so publicly panicked after the Cal loss. And with the handling of Vance Bedford coming on the heels of Demoting's offensive coordinator after the first game last year, just look at USC where people were willing to fire or wanted to fire Clay Helton, you know, immediately after they lost to Utah, and now two weeks later, games that frankly I expected them to win against ASU in Colorado, Sam Darnold's looked good, and things have quieted down for now. And if they can put together a nice run, maybe that's not a topic after all. One of the things I wonder about, Stu, is when it comes to Helton as a compared to Charlie Strong, here's why I think it's different. And this goes back a little bit to James Franklin's situation at Penn State and as well, where I look at guys, if you're a proven head coach, and this is not your first head coaching job, I'm inclined to give you more of the benefit of the doubt because you, you have been through some of this and worked it out a little bit. You know, Clay Helton, like some other guys who are first-time head coaches, I think there is more, well, you're learning on the job. I think there's a little more skepticism on how it's going to unfold, whereas Charlie Strong did a very good job at Louisville. Now, I know it's a, it's a harder job. He's facing 
you know, better competition. The situations he inherited were different. The stage is obviously much bigger here. But I do think that the skepticism you get with a first-time head coach should be different. The way Texas and at least some of the people around Texas are approaching it, it's like Charlie Strong's never been a head coach before. And I think that's kind of a more of a head-scratcher to me. But then again, this smacks of this feels a little bit like Rich Rod at Michigan, I think. Absolutely. That's definitely the comparison. Now, let me ask you something. We talked about this last week. And that one of the added factors that was ramping up the pressure there that wasn't necessarily expected was LSU firing less miles and, and getting you know first dibs into the Tom Herman sweepstakes. How much did Houston losing to Navy, you know, I don't think that means Tom Herman can't coach, but suddenly the hype or, and excitement around that Houston story just went out the window. I mean, as I wrote about, this was, this was a bad loss, not just because you know, everybody's initial reaction was, well, now they're not going to make the playoff, and that's true. But now they're not, now they need help to win their own division of their conference. Navy is ahead of them now in that division. And if that's the case, if they don't end up winning their, even their division, much less their conference, there's a very good chance they're going to be spending this postseason at the Boca Raton Bowl or something like that. So would that help Charlie Strong or any of these other hot seat coaches? just that maybe people will back off a little bit about Tom Herman. I don't think one loss would do it. Now, they still have Louisville coming in there, you know, in November. And if they stumble someplace else and go nine and three, then I think his, you know, I don't want to say his stock would take a huge hit. But I think right now you're looking at there would be so much attention around around Tom Herman leading into, you know, I mean, what it's what this has definitely done is kind of removed Houston from the national conversation for a while. And so I think there'll be less Tom Herman hysteria. Look, we've beaten the drum for him quite a bit. I still think he's a terrific coach. I still think that, you know, if somebody's going to make a, a coaching change, I think he would be the guy I would think you should go after for a variety of reasons. But I, I certainly think that this was not a bad thing for Charlie Strong, that it kind of quells a little bit of the Tom Herman hysteria. I mean, Earlier in, I think on Friday, I did, uh, Thursday or Friday, I did Dan Patrick's radio show, and he had had Tom Herman on, and he asked me about why Tom Herman would leave, or, you know, kind of the juxtaposition of Tom Herman compared to Texas. And the point I had made was, and I know Houston fans don't like to hear this, but if Tom Herman is presented with the option of, can he get, the, you know, take the Texas job or stay at Houston? especially with Houston not likely making it into the Big 12. This is an underscore how tight the margin for error is if you're an, a group of five program. I mean, you know, one loss and you're off the radar. And that doesn't happen, or wouldn't happen at certainly at Texas. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of things to, to sort out here. But I want to see how, how Houston goes forward now. I, I imagine they're, they're not going to stumble outside of maybe – Louisville, but we'll see. How surprised were you that they would lose to Navy? I know, uh, obviously, the suspension of their top defensive player didn't help. And Navy is a good program. But I think we were all under the impression this was not Keenan Reynolds-level Navy. They lost to Air Force. This wasn't just that they couldn't stop the option. Greg Ward had three turnovers. Uh, it just didn't look at all like the Houston team of the first five games. Uh, be honest, had you ever heard of Will Worth before Saturday? No, no, I had not. Me neither. Um, and he had 115 yards, and that was a very, that had been a very good rushing defense. Um, you know, I I looked at it at one point, and they had Navy had run 50 plays and had 41 points. That's <laughs> pretty hard thing to pull that off. Yeah, no question. It was a fantastic performance by Navy. They, as we're recording this, the new AP poll came out. Navy's now ranked 25th. And I love that Navy, how it affects the whole, you know, the whole school, all the midshipmen. The superintendent immediately gave them a four-day weekend. They were already going to be off for the holiday on Monday, and now they're off Tuesday as well. That's how big a deal beating a top-10 team was for the first time in decades. I would have to say that was the most impactful result of the whole weekend because of all the implications we just talked about. It hurts Louisville's playoff chances and that— they need that Houston game to be as big a deal as possible. Um, now, the biggest game, I would argue, was Texas A&M-Tennessee. It was, first of all, it was like a five-hour game. I actually think, wasn't it a five-hour game? Uh, I'd have to look up exactly what it was. It felt like it. 
it seemed like, and I'm talking before it even went to overtime, we were going to do a, a, a Facebook Live uh, with you remotely from Utah, and the game went so long you had to bolt. Literally, I'm watching in the last two minutes, you know, from the Utah press box with my producer, and I'm waiting to go down to the field, and we're going to do this, you know, this for 15 minutes. And at one point, and, you know, it was, it was funny because my game was seven seconds ahead of your game, so I'm trying not to spoil it for you. You kind of were doing that, but that's all right. Yeah, so it's going on, and at one point, you know, here at Texas A&M's going to kick field. Well, I'm going to go down to the field because I need to get there, and then we'll do it from there. And then a couple of the Arizona coaches were already out on the field, and they were talking about watching the game or, you know, being told about the game. We're talking about it, and somebody came up and said uh, he missed the field goal and it's going into overtime. And I was like, you got to be kidding. This game's going to go on for six hours. You know, it reminded me, I'm sure this got brought up, of, of Don Beebe in the Super Bowl. And I remember, you remember, did you, you were at uh, Auburn, Alabama, the Cam Newton game, right? I was not. I was watching it from Nevada. Okay, there was a play in there early in the first half where Alabama's about to go you know, score another touchdown. And I'm blanking on the, the Auburn defensive end. I actually remember he went to Bay Point, the, the school. It's like a special school in Miami, and I'm blanking on his name. But he made a great effort play to kind of keep Alabama off the board, and it turned out to, you know, those kind of plays usually, you know, games get won by that. Obviously, in this case, not so much for Tennessee. Now I'm wondering... Alabama's up next. Tennessee's still pretty banged up. Do you think Tennessee has anything left in the tank to hang with Alabama? I do, actually. Um, and, and that was one thing I was going to mention is, as exciting as this game was, as, as fun as it was, as impactful as you would think it would be with two top ten teams, to me, nothing really changed. And literally, in the AP poll, uh, Tennessee didn't move. They lo- you, know, you never see that. Teams lose. They drop. Tennessee lost the game. They stayed exactly where they were. Which I don't necessarily disagree with, because if you feel A&M was ranked about where they were and they go and they lose in overtime on the road, it doesn't mean that they're suddenly worse. Um, but the, the point I'm making, Tennessee turns around and beats Alabama. Nothing about their season has changed. If anything, it would give renewed hope that maybe they can do more than just win the SEC East, that they could win the SEC. And same with A&M. Obviously great to get that win, but, um, you know... The West is going to come down to them whether or not winning the West is going to depend on them beating Alabama. Uh, With Tennessee, I mean, this has been quite a roller coaster they've been on. There's no question about that. Injuries, crazy comebacks. I will say that the the question I raised last week of if they're lucky or good, this game more than the others proved to me they're good. They turned it over six times and still had a chance to win it at the end. Now, you could say Travion Williams fumbling into the end zone and giving them a chance was luck. But uh, for the most part, this was a great performance by them. I just think that they have Tennessee has never beaten Nick Saban since he's been at Alabama. As much as people talked about that Florida drought, they've lost them nine straight times. And they're kind of at the precipice of their season in that they play this game and then... After that, it's all downhill. It's South Carolina. It's a bye. It's at South Carolina, who's bad. Tennessee Tech, Kentucky's bad. Missouri's bad. Vandy's bad. So in many ways, just you know, whatever you've got left in the tank, bring it this week because this is the apex of the season. And like I said, if they win this game, I think you could first of all wrap up the SEC East for them, whether or not Florida, whatever happens with Florida and getting the game rescheduled or not. Um, and if they lose the game. Then that scenario does come into play, though it does seem, from what we're hearing, that they are going to try to reschedule that game. Yeah, I mean, let's get into this. I'm sure you saw the video I did with our colleague Tim Brando. Tim was steaming uh, mad when he was seeing this kind of thing unfold. Uh, You know, ultimately, there's plenty of, I don't say blame to go around, but I think when you start, you know, safety is the biggest issue. Yes, I think we all agree with that. And this was something Tim pointed out. You know, this is ultimately Greg Sankey's decision, you know, and I agree with him. I think there was some very shaky leadership on letting this thing get kind of dragged on to the point that it did. You agree? I mean, how do you think Greg Sankey handled this? Not well. And it was interesting. You know, everybody accuses Gary Danielson of being an SEC show, myself included. He did most of that interview during the game with him. And 
I thought he did a very good job. He with did it. a very good job. He was taking him to task. He wanted answers. He really didn't get answers. I mean, I no, was, he didn't. You know, tweeting some of the answers back, and it was like, yeah, Greg Sankey, you know, has a desire to play the game. I'm like, yeah, that's not surprising to me. Now he only has seven conference games. Yeah, I would hope he, he has a desire to get the game played. Well, he did have a comment in there that I thought was interesting about. He said something like, you know, the SEC, we often think of ourselves as a family, and families have tension sometimes. I do think the SEC is furious that Florida wouldn't take up LSU on any of its alternative options to play the game on Sunday, to play the game in Baton Rouge. Obviously, a hurricane was bearing down on the state. I don't. Anybody who's suggesting they should have played the game on Saturday is not has no knowledge of like hurricanes and how unpredictable they are. And by the way, people have died in the state of Florida from this hurricane. There is a lot of people without power. Maybe it's not in Gainesville, but people from all over the state are impacted by a Florida game. But I do think he could have played it Sunday. I do think he could have played it in Baton Rouge. And I think if this were Mike's live, he would have made sure that happened. I think Greg, Greg Sankey got run over a little bit by Jeremy Foley. And now they're in a position of having to there is no good scenario here. You know, play the game on November 19th. Okay, if you can make that happen, great. But then LSU plays, I believe, three road games in 11 days or something like that. Three conference road games. Yeah. And that's assuming you can find a way to get their game against South Alabama rescheduled. Because if you don't, they lose a home game out of this. They would end up losing about 5 to $10 million in revenue. $10 million seems awfully that high. That was the number that Ross... Dellinger, the, who's I think does a really good job covering LSU for the Advocate, had said it would cost. Oh, you know, because of the buyout, because he's including the how much they have to pay um, South Alabama one point five million to buy it out. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things they would also, you know, have to. Uh, it's the revenue they lose from on their own home game, and it's also it's not just the money that costs to get out of it, and then on top of it, the money that the local community would get. Sankey himself said this game needs to be played, and it does. You do not want division races determined by somebody having played one fewer game than everybody else. And as I've mentioned, it has ramifications even into the committee rankings, possibly. You know, at Wisconsin, one of their, their big win over LSU, um, will that be against a... An eight and three LSU team, or a nine and three, or an eight and four. I mean, there's wide ranging implications. Let me give you a, a crazy scenario: if they don't play the game, let's say Tennessee beats Alabama, and then you know Florida wins out. Tennessee, which would have beaten Alabama and beaten Florida head to head, would still not play for the conference championship. It's crazy, and that's why they need to do whatever they can to avoid it. I think they will. From what I've been told by people with knowledge of the situation. Um, the, all of the talks on that day uh, on Thursday were about trying to reschedule the game that weekend. They didn't even begin talking about okay, now that we're not playing it, what do we do uh, until Friday? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, that's that's kind of a head scratcher at that point. One of the things that came up a lot in our discussions when I was uh, when we were working on our game, Brando, like a lot of people, has been a big proponent of having a commissioner for college football. Now, I, I think that's pretty far fetched, but I don't disagree with it in theory at all. But the one thing I said to Tim was, you know, you want a commissioner for college football. The SEC has its commissioner, and they still couldn't get this sorted out. So you're going to expect this to play out over a more global aspect of the game? I mean, to me, that seems... No, this was an SEC issue. And, you know, I don't know, maybe the SEC needs to revisit its bylaws about what role the commissioner does have. You know, he can't force Florida to play the game. Um, I don't know about playing it on. I mean, it's it's the school's decision at the end of the day, but the, the SEC can influence it. Maybe the rule going forward needs to be that the SEC has final say. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I remember last year where South Carolina moved the game. Oh, it's definitely doable. Florida just didn't want to do it. And the I don't want to be insensitive. I mean, what they were saying was not yet knowing, you know, how big the impact was going to be. If it was catastrophic and, you know, you have a lot of guys on the team whose families live in the affected area. You know, they, they forget about Gainesville, live down on the coast, um, that they wouldn't want to force these guys to get on a bus or a plane and, and leave. They'd want to be with their families. So that's the official line. Now, somebody could turn around and say, well, then why was Georgia able to play uh, South Carolina on Sunday? Why did Notre Dame and NC State go ahead and play their game in what sure looked like a hurricane? That was, I'm not sure I've, I've, I can't think of the last time I saw a game played in more 
dreadful conditions than that. I mean, it looked like they were playing slip and slide. There were like 10 fumbles in the game. Nobody could snap the ball, but they played it. So that's, I think, why there's not much empathy for Florida. Okay, we'll get back to the podcast in a second. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsors. The first is Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, which proudly supports the Audible podcast. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com audible. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. We're also brought to you today by Identity Guard, and I've got a question for you. Have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? I actually thought this just yesterday, getting in a, out of an Uber back from the airport. Anyway, how awful was that? Even if you found it in five minutes, if you're like me, your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster, financially, emotionally, even physically, that could take years to unwind. That's how you can help protect yourself with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, you get protection from a company that's been in business for over 20 years, one that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialists will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Card at identityguard.com slash podcast. That's identityguard.com slash podcast. Let's talk about that Notre Dame game, shall we? Okay, you go all in on them. <laughs> I feel like Brian Kelly doesn't have much of a bandwagon left. Brian Kelly, now we both agree he did one of his better coaching jobs of his time there last season to get that team to 10 wins. This season has been just a train wreck from the beginning. I feel like he has mismanaged almost every aspect of this season. Uh, if Brian Van Gorder is such a bad defensive coordinator, why did you bring him back this year? If Deshaun Kaiser is now, who's now being listed as the top quarterback draft prospect for this coming season, even ahead of Deshaun Watson, why was he splitting time in the first game, which hurt them against Texas? He's been ripping players publicly, ripped that poor snapper the other day. Not, you know, occasionally he'll take responsibility for things, but um, I think the way he projects himself when things are going poorly doesn't do him any favors. And in that game, the rain was coming down so hard, the wind was blowing so hard, and there they were going five wide, shotgun, as if this is the game plan we installed, we're just going to stick to it. Yeah, I mean, right now, it, it feels like with Notre Dame, it's almost like all or nothing. You know, Brian Kelly's had two terrific years, and then the other years, it's like major drama. And maybe that's the way it is when you're life of, you know, the head coach at Notre Dame. But it, it really does feel like it's one or the other. It's never like a middle ground. Some fans have had a problem with him for a while with the, you know, chewing out the quarterbacks on the sideline. And, and I think with any coach at any school, you could find fault with something, you know, unless, unless it's Saban and he's winning national championships every year. I didn't really feel any need to criticize him in, for the most part until this year. Uh, I do think he's botched this season. This being Brian Kelly, obviously, not Nick Saban. No, yeah, Brian Kelly. Uh, you know, I, I think this has been, you know, whereas the last two years, if they lost some games they shouldn't have lost, you could look at the massive amount of injuries, losing guys to academic suspension, things that are completely out of his control. He controls who he hires as defense coordinator, who plays quarterback, what game plan they play in a monsoon. So 
this one, this two and four is on him, and it'll be interesting this week. Um, you've got two reeling teams playing each other in what was supposed to be a big primetime game. Stanford, which has been absolutely embarrassed the last two weeks by Washington and Washington State. Offensive line is a mess. Christian McCaffrey got hurt in the last game. It's not clear whether that's major or not. And Notre Dame, two and four, um, you know, still a lot of questions on defense. I don't have any idea who's going to win that game. But it does feel like both teams' hopes of salvaging their season basically rides on that game. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Stanford here, though. You know, the last two weeks, they have played the two Washington schools. The combined score, 86 to 22. Stanford, who had only allowed four sacks in the first three games, has given up 12 the past two weeks. And this is even more shocking. Stanford, with its, you know, reputation for great physical football, and obviously Christian McCaffrey, they're 11th in the Pac-12 in rushing. What the hell has happened still? You live up there. It's a great question. Um, it'd be one thing if they had struggled that badly from the beginning, but you know, the offense wasn't great the first three games, but it wasn't like this. And, you know, look, they've had some injuries. Daniel Marks, really good, uh, you know, really good run-blocking fullback has been out the last two games. The offensive line, one of their tackles was out this past game. I mean, I don't know if that means they don't have any depth on the offensive line or, you know, just moving, having to move a guy around affects the whole thing. But that's where it begins and ends. You know, I know they have a new quarterback and there are still questions about him. Uh, But when you're getting just manhandled up front, when Washington State is racking up sacks against you, um, clearly that's on the O-line and possibly the fullback position. I I do think that's an underrated part of it. Marks is a a bit, but, you know, a fullback wouldn't erase the the extent of those deficits for sure. So uh, it's an interesting time in the Pac-12, as I wrote about, you know, Oregon and Stanford had won every Pac-12 championship since 2009. So USC had that run. And then from 09 through 15, Oregon or Stanford has won every Pac-12 title. They are obviously both out of it. And Washington and Washington State both played them the last two weeks in reverse order and, and both crushed them. And what do you think about your guy Leach? For the second straight year, they lose to an FCS team opening week. And then by the time it gets to Pac-12 play, Suddenly, they look like a team that is a contender. You know, I'm, when I thought about this a little bit, I'm not surprised they beat Stanford. Probably should have beat them last year. But I went up to Cal. I remember Sonny Dyke said something. They played them last year, this being Cal, and it was coming off a bye week. And he goes after the first, I don't know, his first drive or, you know, first two drives, he said something in his headset. He was like, oh, shit, this is a very different team than we've seen on film. And again, they had a bye week or an open week and things changed. I mean, they crushed Oregon, which, you know, doesn't look great, but still, you know, the Oregon still has a lot more players that Washington State would have liked to have recruited. I'll say that Uh, this wasn't even close. And, you know, I think they're a really good team. I think some of the struggles are finding the identity and where they were. They did have a, you know, a handful of good players to replace on defense. And I think that was a little bit of a challenge. And so much of what, what those what his system is is really about timing and, and everybody gelling. And it you know, for whatever reason, maybe they need to stop going to that high school, you know, like in, in Idaho. <laughs> maybe that's the reason for the slow starts. But the way they're looking right now, I think they might be the second best team in the Pac twelve. Yeah, so if you watched and by the way, I, I just feel like all of the Pac twelve games are on late now. So they were all on. I feel like I was watching three or four different Pac-12 games at once. End of night the other night, you had the game you were at, uh, Utah, Arizona. You had Washington State, Stanford. You had UCLA, uh, ASU, and Oregon State, Cal, all going on at the same time. And I'm just thinking, I'm not impressed by any of these teams. You know, I think Utah had a nice performance the other night. You weren't impressed by Washington? Oh, of course, Washington. I didn't even include Washington, Oregon in that list. That game was earlier. Uh, no, Washington, in my mind, is so far above the other teams. So you're all in on Washington. How could you not be? You know, people could say, well, Oregon and Stanford aren't as good as they should have been, so you're devaluing. Well, as I always say, nobody's played anybody, right? As soon as you clobber somebody, then everybody just backtracks on that team. Uh, I'm not impressed by anybody in the Pac-12 South with the possible exception of Utah and I, but I just don't know that Utah's offense is good enough to go on a run from here. Uh, Washington State's is, 
And so it may be that the Apple Cup at the end of the year, that would be pretty cool if that had major ramifications. I don't know. Well, what do you think? Do you think it's a sure thing Washington wins the conference? If not, who would instead? I don't think it's a sure thing. Um, I mean, look, remember, as bad as Washington State started, and the second team they lost to is Boise State. I think Boise State's actually pretty good. I've seen them in oh, person. Oh, for sure. But Washington State's undefeated in the conference, too. That game is up in Pullman this year. You know, last year, Wazoo got blown out, but that was without Luke Falk. If Luke Falk's healthy... I don't think that game is a blowout, but, um, you know, we got to see. I mean, it's still Washington's still pretty young team. And, you know, I, I would talk to the Arizona coaches. It wasn't like Arizona, who's really banged up, was blown off the field by the Huskies. That was a close game. So, you know, I, I still think Washington's the class of the conference. And I, I think they're a top five team. But, you know, I don't think there's a huge gap between them and the rest of the conference. I really don't. Michigan fans are getting on my case because I only have them seventh in the top ten, which... Wow, I thought I had gotten crap for snubbing them. No, I mean... Seventh? Yes, I have them behind Louisville. I have them behind Texas A&M. That's a resume thing, mostly. I fully, readily admit Michigan has looked awesome, but... You have behind Louisville? Did you watch the Louisville-Clemson game? I did. I also watched the end of it where they lost. Yeah, I just think that they... With the way they beat Florida State and with that game. I mean, what's Michigan's signature win right now? The Wisconsin game, right? Yeah, Wisconsin's a pretty good team still. They are a pretty good team. Um, but I think that if you're evaluating the teams, I mean, I think Louisville taking Clemson down. Clemson is a lot better than, or not a lot better. They're better than uh, Wisconsin. So that game was on the road, not at home. I'm losing my original point, which was, so the Michigan fans are unhappy with me. And the team they seem to be most miffed about is Washington. Why is Washington ahead of them? So I started thinking about it because, yeah, Washington doesn't have the world's greatest resume either, especially with that non-conference slate. Which quarterback are you taking, Jake Browning or Wilton Spate? Jake Browning. Which running backs are you taking, Miles Gaskin and Coleman or Devion Smith and Michigan's guys? Why don't you tell me about like all the skill guys? I'm taking Michigan's receivers and tight ends over Washington's. Fair enough. I'm also taking Michigan's offensive line. Yeah, you wrote about that. I was a little surprised to see that, and look, Aaron Taylor knows a lot more about offensive line play than I do. I was a little surprised to see him be that high on them uh, because I felt like as of recently as two games ago, people were lamenting that Michigan's offensive line wasn't playing better and that they weren't getting more push in the run game. This was exactly the theme of the piece. So as he had referenced, he said, offensive lines take time to gel, and he goes, he pointed back to the Ohio State team that won the national title. He goes, they were getting their ass kicked by Virginia Tech early in the season. It was by the end of the year, they were as good as it gets in terms of being physical. You have a lot of parts that have to come together. In the case of you know Michigan, you move Mason Cole from tackle to center. You have some guys get hurt. And he said they got healthy and they got tightened up really when they played a banged up Penn State team. He goes, once you get that on film and you see it, it's like all of a sudden – Things have started to come together from that point. So remember, by the way, this was a team that is actually up 70 spots in rushing offense from where they were last year. And Michigan seemed like they were pretty good last year, right? How many of that was against Rutgers? I mean, didn't they run for almost 500 yards the other night? They did, but they they had run the ball pretty well the weeks before, or reasonably well. So, okay, we'll go ahead and turn the page. End of day, very high on Washington, Washington State or Utah. Can we talk about Utah for a minute? Sure. Okay. So Utah at one point was down to their six string running back. They are really banged up. I I'm I think they're going to struggle to to get through the season as a you know maybe they'll get a couple of these other guys back. I would think one guy was in a boot. The other one who didn't start um, is a really good freshman running back, Zach Moss. He may he may be back in a couple of weeks, but they're hurting. They had a, a running back before the game. You know, Dennis Erickson is a running back coach there said, you know, basically Armand Shaw is a sophomore. He was going to get the bulk of the carries. He was the fourth string running back. And then he took a brutal shot on his knee where they literally had to carry him off the field at the end of the game. Um, so they were down to one guy. And that's a team. It's not like they're going to go go be a, you know, a five wide all the time. You know, it's basically like leave it in the gun and try to let uh, – I'd let Troy Williams be the primary ball carrier. It's going to be a stretch for them. Well, so if they're hurting, I don't know, maybe ASU is going to win the South, right? I, I was going to say the team that's probably disappointing me the most in that division is UCLA. I don't get why 
their offense is so mediocre, even before Josh Rosen got hurt the other night. By the way, there was a weird thing that, not weird, but an interesting thing that happened in the course of my game Saturday. Uh, Utah had a ridiculous amount of false starts. They had eight, which at first I was like, well, they were playing with a fourth string starting center who was a former walk-on guard who had actually never played center in a game in his life at any level. But when I asked Kyle Whittingham, it was my first question going into the locker room uh, coming off the field in the se- at the end of the second quarter. And I said, well, how do you explain that? Or can you explain it? He goes, yeah, they're yelling go. They're yelling go. It's, they're simulating our s- snap count. And we're saying something to the official and they got to call that. And then I had asked them like two other quick things because it's like you're scrambling. You get whatever you can in like 40 seconds. And my first thought was, I got to get a better handle on this. How common is it? I was able to get on the phone a line coach and a line coach in the SEC who had said, yeah, it's disconcerting signals. That's that's kind of the technicality. And it's supposed to be called by the refs and it would be a five yard uh, penalty on the defense. Yet they never called it. And then after the game was over, I had asked Whittingham, and this is on camera, one of my questions was, what was the turning point in the game? And he went right back there and had some very interesting comments. I had tweeted out the link to the comments. Um, I, I'm surprised that, and maybe it does happen quite a bit, but I, I'm surprised that the refs aren't more in tune with it. How widespread do you think it really is? Well, it happens from time to time. I've seen where it's been you know, talked about in the media, but... At this point, I think it's just one of those where, you know, how proactive are are the officials? You would think they would be able to hear it. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the Arizona D-line was doing a lot of stemming and moving, you know, pre-snap as well. But something had to be up. And, you know, you could kind of tell how ticked off Whittingham was about it. And I'm surprised this doesn't get actually talked about more. I think the issue for Kyle Whittingham there was that he said that after a game that ended at 2 in the morning Eastern time. Uh, between you know a team that's ranked pretty low and another team that was two and three. If that happened in a game between top ten teams and the coach said it afterward, it'd be a huge controversy. All right, I don't know if it'd be a huge controversy, but I think it would. I, I bet this issue will get talked about a lot more this week. While you were doing your game, Florida State and Miami uh, met, and your alma mater acquitted itself quite nicely. I thought, even though they didn't win the game, uh, after all those years of Florida State losing on it because of a missed field goal. Uh, some poetic justice for Florida State fans, I think, that Miami lost this one on a blocked extra point. But all in all, I was really impressed with Miami's defense. You know, DeAndre Francois got it going in the second half. Dalvin Cook had two really big runs. But for the most part, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you had told me beforehand that uh, Miami was going to run all over Florida State's defense, I wouldn't have been entirely surprised. That didn't happen. But nor did FSU, um, you know, blow away a Miami defense that is starting three freshman linebackers. And frankly, uh, I didn't think would perform at this level this season. Um, what do you think, Manny Diaz, court defensive coordinator of the year? Uh, I think he deserves some consideration at this point, no question. I think he's done a terrific job. I would put Greg Schiano high on that list considering how well that young Ohio State defense is playing. But certainly, I think Manny Diaz, what he's done has been terrific. Now, those three linebackers are really, really talented. And people around there have talked about how smart they are, how much improvement they've made. The guy who really impressed me in the little bit I saw of the game was DeAndre Francois. And he took a pounding and, you know, hung in there. I mean, he's played four ranked teams and has only thrown one pick in those games. I know that you know, the measuring stick for some people as well. Jameis won a national title as a redshirt freshman. That's a tough measuring stick to have, but I think he's really coming together very well, and we'll see how much better FSU's defense can play. The one disappointing part of the game was when Miami fans started throwing bottles on the field because of a bad targeting call. Um, You know, there's a lot of bad targeting calls in college football, and for whatever reason, none of them usually cause people to throw trash onto the field. But at Miami, whose fans have a reputation— um that happened yeah not a good look not a good look by the way do you get a lot of abuse from miami fans they think you're very anti-miami i do i've noticed that in the last couple of days what do you think drives that is it because i went to miami no no, nobody cares about that it starts with picking them i think to go seven and five in the preseason which seemed like a perfectly reasonable prediction that reminds me of something so one of your preseason picks 
isn't looking so good right now. One of, we could make a long list of predictions that don't look the so good. The one you got the most attention for. And I noticed you tried to suck up to the Virginia Tech fans now by sticking them in your rankings after you said that. What did you think that they were going to go three and nine? Five and seven. Five and seven. They were six and six last year. New coach. You sucking up to them the way you disrespected them is the equivalent of you hopping on the bandwagon with B.O. They don't want you here, Stu. Get off their bandwagon. On the contrary, they're loving it. But I'm not doing it to appease Virginia Tech fans. I'm doing it because how much did we talk up um, Mitch Trubisky last week? How many times did we point out what amazing stats he had? It was it was really raining hard. Well, you know, both teams had to play in that, right? Yeah, no. Let's talk Gerard Evans, JC transfer from, you know, who was that Air Force. I know he's a player. Virginia Tech, to me, is quietly emerging as one of the surprise stories this season. I think because they lost by three touchdowns to Tennessee in a very highly watched game, then nobody can believe, like, people were incredulous that I had them in the top ten. And, of course, you know how this works. Everybody says, you're crazy, how can you have them in the top ten? Nobody says, who should obviously be there instead. Who did you have number 10? Uh, I had Boise State. There you go. That's a perfectly reasonable one. I almost had uh, Nebraska in there, but I was like, you know what? I've seen Boise State. The win over Wazoo now looks better and better, and I think it's going to keep looking better. So, you know, getting back to Virginia Tech, I'm kind of feeling like the way it sounds like you're talking, they're almost a little bit like a bizarro version of Oklahoma. When nobody gives them any attention, they rise up, and when people start to get focused on them, they seem to disappoint. Now, the difference with them is, this is, I said they're bizarre Oklahoma because they're inverse. They're great usually on defense with Bud Foster and their offense you have a hard time buying into, which I feel like Oklahoma is very dynamic on offense and the defense kind of has you pulling your hair out. You with me on that? I just feel like with Virginia Tech, you have to hit the reset button on any patterns that they've had over the years with the you know massive coaching change uh, this season. But what I was going to say is, you know, the Tennessee game, they lost five fumbles. And I think that contributed to... It obviously contributed to, you know, a more lopsided score than probably that game indicated. For the most part, they acquitted themselves well. They've now blown out the last three teams they've played. Mitch Trubisky, whose praises we could not have sung enough last week, they held him to 58 passing yards and two interceptions, 13 of 33 completions. So Bud Foster's got that defense playing at a very high level. Gerard Evans, I think, has been a real spark for an offense that had obviously been struggling for years. I don't know where this goes from here, um, but I do think they're probably the favorite at this point to win their division, and you would not have seen that coming before the year. No, uh, certainly you didn't see it coming at the start of the year. I did not see it coming before the year. But again, much like A&M, my A&M playoff pick last year, I guess I was just a a little too far ahead of the curve because if I'm not mistaken, I had Virginia Tech going 10-2. and prior to last season maybe that's the, the that's how that happens you get so worked up and you, it's almost like you take it out of them the next year because you're like they let me down well no you don't take it out of them but you feel obviously you feel a little more cautious the next year though i was ready to go in on a&m again this year i think i had nine and three so i was obviously optimistic on them this year and it'll be interesting the sec the next couple weeks with alabama tennessee this week I was a little surprised maybe i shouldn't be alabama ten and a half point favorite on the road at tennessee um, that tells me not just that Vegas loves Alabama, but that they think Tennessee's kind of a fraud. Uh, and the week after that, Alabama plays A&M at home. A&M has kind of turned out to be like you told us they were going to be when you went to their preseason practice. Yeah, look, they're, they're a very physical team. Travion Williams is dynamic running back. And I think with Trevor Knight, you know, it's like there's, there's a lot of good. There's some that's the kind of, you know, leaves you on your seat a little negatively, but they're they're a really talented team. They've come of age. They've got good receivers. And I think what is unique about them, even with Miles Garrett being banged up, what is different this time is they have like three playmakers in the secondary and they were forcing turnovers. I mean, literally taking the ball away from from Tennessee players at times. And I think that is different about them than it was the previous years. Who do you give a better chance to upset Alabama, Tennessee this week in Knoxville or A&M the following week in Tuscaloosa? Uh, A&M. You give A&M the better chance. I do. A&M has the week off. I think A&M is a more talented team. Gives Miles Garrett more time to get healed up. I do. I think Tennessee has the better chance just because it's a road game for Alabama in Knoxville. And because of, I just think that place is going to be a sizzling cauldron on Saturday of nine years of pent up frustration. Nine years of pent up frustration from losing to Alabama every year. 
and a huge rivalry. I think that should be the new name of your Monday column. Sizzling Cauldron. Yeah. Immediate recovery has lost a little bit of steam because nobody remembers the origin of it now. But, you know, I'm fine with it. Um, oh, you'll change it in a couple weeks. No, I, I don't think so. We don't like to do midseason coaching changes here. Sizzling Cauldron, Stu. I think, I think that could be a meme right now. All right. There's one thing that's bothering me about this college football season. And that's that everybody wants to fire everybody. Um, I I don't know if it's because LSU acted as quickly as it did, but if you were to listen to Twitter, Notre Dame's firing Brian Kelly, Oregon's firing Mark Halfridge, Texas is firing Charlie Strong, Penn State going to maybe fire James Franklin, even though Sandy Barber has made it clear that's not going to happen. And I just think that um, every situation's different. Um, Oregon is not LSU. Oregon has has not fired a coach since 1976, and as bad as this looks, I don't think they're going to fire Mark Helfrich after this year. He won 33 games in the past three years. They are less than two years removed from the national title game. And also, we're talking about a school... I mean, nobody got spoiled quicker than Oregon fans because they went on such a great run that... And I don't... You know, this is just the nature of being a fan that now they expect them to be that dominant forever. And they forget that... Uh, I can't take credit for pointing this out. Was it Schroeder? Somebody pointed out that, you know, the field at Austin Stadium is named after Rich Brooks, who had a sub-500 record over his two decades there. You know, Oregon football, this is a relatively recent phenomenon that they are this good. And so I think if you fire Mark Alfrich, and look, if they, he comes back next year and has a losing record in the two straight years, then yeah, you probably do fire him. But who's going to walk in there and, you know, be Chip Kelly all over again? There is no natural recruiting base there. As much as everybody thinks that you know they can sign whoever they want because of the cool uniforms, I don't actually think that's that big a factor in their success. And the system that was so innovative five years ago, six years ago, whatever it was, uh, you still need a quarterback, and they don't have one right now. So maybe they have one now. And you know, it's a kid from well, yeah, the played, freshman. You know, he played okay. I mean, for a first start against a really nasty defense. I also just think that the edge of the, in 2010, when they went to the national title game, nobody had seen anything quite like that. The the pace that they operated at. I remember and this probably should have been a sign of how the Lane Kiffin, how the rest of the Lane Kiffin tenure at USC is going to go. But when they were getting ready to play Oregon that year, they were not a very good team. He was like, oh, we're just having them run extra wind sprints this week. So they'll be in better condition for Oregon. You know, like that's going to make a difference. Um, they don't have that edge anymore. Lots of teams go up tempo. It's it's not unexpected. Defenses are used to playing it. Doesn't mean that it's easy to stop. It obviously wasn't with uh, Marcus Mariota two years ago. By the way, I've been taking some crap from some Oregon fans that I keep mispronouncing his last name. I've been mispronouncing his last name for four years. Mariota, not Mariota, Mariota. So you know, and and so Halford's not getting fired. Can we agree Brian Kelly's not getting fired? Yes. Can we agree that James Franklin's not getting fired? Yeah, definitely not. And he certainly helped himself by routing, you know, an undefeated Maryland team. Sure. So chill out, everybody. <laughs> There's who is getting fired? Who is getting fired? Well, I hate to rain on Daryl Hazel's parade after he just got a Big Ten win over Illinois, but I assume he's being fired. Yeah, I could see that. I think Clay Helton is still a Clay Helton firing is still in play because you know they are in a soft part of their schedule now. They can win some games, but they're still. Uh, some some hard ones waiting at the end of the year, including at Washington. Yeah, we'll see. I actually have USC this weekend in my game at Arizona. Two weeks in a row for, of Arizona for you. I don't know who else is getting fired. Uh, I don't know. I think there's gonna. I could see some changes happening soon for a couple of Mountain West schools. Oh, Tim DeRuiter is getting fired. Yeah, I like Tim a lot, and he had a big first year, but it's gone downhill since then. Steve Adazio. I don't know. You know, I had talked to a, you know, a pretty plugged in BC person before the start of the year and mentioned that possibility. He said, no, I think he's safe. But they have been dreadful, especially on offense. I mean, you can say there were injuries last year, but just they are spectacularly bad on offense when it comes to playing anybody in their conference. Yeah, I didn't think he'd be fired for going five and seven ish. But I mean, they haven't won an ACC game since 2014. And if it continues in this direction... Yeah, I don't know if he can survive that. Here's one for you that I I don't know which way this would go. Paul Johnson. Yeah, Paul Johnson always you know seems to be a little salty there. I mean, I think he's a very good coach, especially with that system. I think once you're in that system, it's hard to you know you're in it you know, and that 
that's a job that I think a lot of people would find desirable because there's so many players in and around Atlanta. I initially assumed Mark Stoops would be, but I think he might be starting to be okay. Derek Mason, not so much. So basically, I just complained about everybody focusing on firing coaches, and then we just proceeded to fire about 10 of them. We didn't fire them all, but I think what's different is the schools we were kind of looking at were under-the-radar schools, whereas the other ones are everybody's, you know— Hi. Oh, and Gus Malzahn, who we were ready to fire going to that LSU Yeah, game. they may have turned it around. By the way, Sean White, yeah. very well. I feel vind- vindicated. Thank you, Sean White. All I know is that if you you watched Last Chance U, right? Uh, I did. There was a picture after the game of Brittany Wagner reuniting with uh, John Franklin III from Auburn and Wyatt Roberts, who's a walk-on at Mississippi State, and I, I got a little choked up. That was really fun to see. You really got choked up. Was that because you ate too much of the Fox— uh, Fox spread this weekend. Let me tell you something. I way overindulged because first of all, and and I'm not necessarily proud of this, but I had, since I was on that pregame show that started at 8 a.m. Pacific and we rehearsed before that, we had to be there at six. I ate all three meals that day at Fox. It's no shame in that still. I was there for, and I'm not complaining because the, the guys who are on the show every week do this every week, but yeah, I was there for 15 hours. Yeah, it's not it's not a bad way to spend a Saturday. It's not. We had a lot of fun. Your guy Pete Rose was there briefly. It was a kind of an interesting situation. What happened was, um, and I know people love when we tell these stories, um, the baseball game uh, that was supposed to be on that day, uh, Dodgers Nationals got canceled before it even. You know, you're used to rain delays, but that game, I guess, the weather was so bad in D.C. that they just went ahead and canceled it before it even started. So suddenly it was like. Uh, you know, oh crap, we got three hours of television to fill, and it wasn't clear exactly how they were going to do that. Um, anyway, all those guys, Frank Thomas, uh, Pete, A-Rod, uh, they did like an hour show, even though there was no game, and then they went home and came back the next day. Uh, it was just interesting to watch what happens when something talked about weather. You know, you were there for a kind of a fire drill with the, you know, ESPN had to deal with this week with games being canceled and moved off you know, suddenly you had to show a game on Sunday that you weren't expecting to. A lot of it's interesting to me, uh, some of the behind-the-scenes like puzzle solving that you have to do when there's unexpected circumstances like that. Yeah, it, it is very interesting to see the sausage being made. So, And with that, as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And of course, later in the week, we will be answering your emails, so send those to The Audible Pod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.